You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Hey, it's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio. Today's cool fact of the day is that sleepwalking is called somnambulism, which is from Latin. It's somnus plus ambulare, which means to sleep and to walk, surprisingly. But what you probably didn't know is that about 18% of the world suffers from sleepwalking. That's way higher than you probably thought it was. One of the other things you probably didn't know, and this is something that I've, I've personally experienced, if you're in a highly toxic environment, like say a bedroom with toxic mold growing above your headboard, like I was, your chances of having uh, night terrors that include sleepwalking go up substantially. So if you are one of those 18% who suffers from sleepwalking, well, that's kind of interesting. But if it just started and you're having all sorts of weird funky dreams, see what the air smells like. Maybe it matters. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's show is one I'm really excited about, and it's something that I think you're going to enjoy. And it's about blue zones. And the blue zones concept is that there's a, a life radius way of talking about a walkable community and how building the environment around you, like your neighborhood, your towns and your cities, directly affects your health, your happiness, and your well-being. 
If you know the definition of biohacking from the infographic that I wrote several years ago when biohacking was a really new idea, it's the art and science of changing the environment around you so that you have more control of your own biology. And that's why this is going to be such a fantastic discussion. It's because we're going to talk about how do you design the city around you so that you kick more ass. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Today's guests are Dan Burden and Samantha Thomas. Uh, Welcome to the show, Dan and Samantha. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, Dan, you're the Director of Innovation and Inspiration and a National Walkability Expert at Blue Zones. And Samantha, you're the Built Environment and Community Catalyst Director. Okay, these are some pretty fancy schmancy titles, but on, on top of that, the White House recognized you, Dan, as one of the top 10 champions of change in transportation. Uh, Time Magazine says you're one of the six most important civic innovators, and you guys are doing some big stuff, even though you have these fancy schmancy titles. So what is this big stuff you're actually doing? <laughs> well, I'll start. We are basically helping create oases for great livability in every town we work in. That communities throughout all of North America have become so focused on the car that everything got out of scale. And uh, that includes our parks, our schools, our streets, our uh, fact that we zoned everything and separated every land use means that people can no longer walk naturally. So our goal is to go in and start to create these oases in a community typically starting with the downtown or or certainly the downtown and its central town area. And then once things get seated and people realize that this is a big change that they love, then we can help inspire the community to go uh, and start to correct even places in the suburbs. Yeah, I would just add it's about what we're looking at, how do we get people back on their feet? And how do we make walking really the most pleasant, um, unavoidable choice of how we choose to get around our cities? And then from there, as we need to go further and further out into adjacent communities and so forth, we have different um, transportation choices, whether it's our own personal car, car sharing, transit, biking, you name um, any of the other innovations that are coming forward with technology now. And um, I think we as humans were born and made to walk. And so how do we make something that's so natural, natural again? It it sounds like in order to build environments where people are basically encouraged to walk, where it just makes sense to walk instead of drive, it sounds like there's a lot of like, you're gonna have to move. You're gonna have to live in high density housing with someone above you and next to you and around you and all that, which a lot of people just don't really want. Uh, it, I, how, do you, how do you tell people, all right, you're gonna have to move in order to get this benefit? Like is the cost and inconvenience of you know, coming out of the suburbs, coming out of the countryside and living in a big high density city? Like are you, are you replicating the model in China? Like how, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, we, we really don't encourage people to move. I mean, if they're footloose and fancy free and they're looking for a new community or even a new part of the community, great. But no, to start fixing every neighborhood. And uh, a, a good starting point would be taking age friendly. The average male is going to outlive their ability to drive a car by five or six years, and for a female, 10 or 12 years. Uh, obviously through many advances in medication and medicine and all kinds of things, but also 
people made some choices of where they wanted to raise their family, they're not going to move. They're not going to sell their house. That's where their worship yeah. centers are and friends and so on. So we need to start with each neighborhood. Uh, some neighborhoods are ready to start right now. Others are probably not going to be ready to start for another five or ten years. Every neighborhood needs a champion. Someone that's going to start to say, okay, it's okay to have uh, a park near us or or make some changes to our schools uh, so that kids can walk to the schools. So every neighborhood in time does need to be fixed. So when you say fixing a neighborhood, you mean putting in sidewalks and crosswalks and speed bumps? Like, like what, what do you do to make something more walkable? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, there's a range of tools and principles kind of in our greater toolbox as communities. And so certainly sidewalks or bike lanes or um, other aspects that you just mentioned are key. But one of the biggest things that we're most uh, interested in and, and really looking at is how do we get safe speeds on streets so that streets really can become complete by then adding in where appropriate and when needed the additional buffers for people biking or walking um, and driving or what we call complete streets. But um, there's a movement happening here in the U.S. that's picking up a lot of speed called Vision Zero. Yeah were um, modeled after Copenhagen in the 80s, correct? David? It is, yeah. And where um, we as communities and as people are tired of losing lives um, due to traffic-related crashes and accidents. Um, and so what that really means is how do we change the speed that people driving are going? Because speed is one, the number one factor that kills people in place. And so we work with communities on identifying what we call the target speed. So if you're near a school, how do you actually help people driving go the 15 mm -hmm. miles per hour? And then from there, with the goal of getting more people walking and biking, you know, add in the features and tools that are needed. So, so when, when I hear things like speed kills, I, I'm always interested in the data. When they raised the speed limit, the number of deaths per mile driven went down. Are, are you sure that speed kills? It does. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I'm unconvinced. Speeding by a school kills. <laughs> but I'm not sure that speed kills in general makes any sense at all. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think the important point about speed is as you increase the speed, let's say from 20 miles an hour to 30, you go from where if you hit a pedestrian or a cyclist, you go from, um, oh, maybe 15% not surviving at 20, at 50 at uh, 30, only 50% survive. Yeah, survivability then, of accidents goes down, but the incidence of them doesn't necessarily go up. I, I, I'd buy that. Yeah, and, and yeah, and I think that's the important point, is that as speeds go up, not only do more pedestrians and bicyclists get killed, but so do motorists. So everything we're doing now to make walking, cycling safer is actually a benefit to the motorists as well. Well, if your commute is twice as long, so we now waste about oh, 40 million extra hours per year sitting in traffic because we're going really slow. Yeah. How many human lifetimes of wasted potential is that? That's yeah. a great point. Unless I'm listening to Bulletproof Radio, in which case it's yeah. better for everyone, right? right. No, but, yeah. but there is, there is a, some sort of a, I would say there's a tension between go slow and actually like get home so you can play with your kids. How, how do you address that? Like some jobs just aren't going to be a work from home job. Some jobs you drive somewhere because you have a specialized expertise and you have a 40 minute commute. 
In fact, I would argue that the vast majority of people listening to our conversation right now are probably commuting, um, not because they don't want to walk to work, but because there isn't a job near them. Exactly. And, and so, you know, if you tell these people, hey, you know, we're going to make the communities more walkable, we're going to cut the speed limits in half, which also lowers the carrying capacity of the roads by 50%, which increases the commute time, oftentimes doubling it. Um, how do you how do you handle that kind of tension? Which okay, we want walkable cities, but we also want people to be able to get home and see their families. Like, what do you tell community people? And I'm imagining these community meetings where you're proposing these changes, uh, like uh, like in Copenhagen where everyone walks. But how do you address that 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 problem? Yeah, everything uh, that relates to the built environment is very complex, mm-hmm. and so there is no simple silver bullet, yeah. uh, it's it's truly, we have to look at every aspect. But one of the most important things is that as we make it easier for motors to drive faster and go further out and they settle further out, it's adding to the traffic congestion. So they're actually not getting home as soon. And it's just, that's just the way traffic works. The more people feel uh, that they can or, the, or because of banking rules and so on, it's just easier to buy a home further out then the more you get locked into a lifestyle that's yeah. full of stress. And so what we're saying is if, if some folks would love to have their own neighborhood rescued and they are fortunate to live more toward the center of town, they should have their quality of life improved so that they can walk, they can bike, and they can drive. And that's the shift that we're seeing in city after city is they become more walkable a lot of traffic tension is eased. It's it's not the opposite. It's it's fascinating that as we create greater walkability, the motors actually have a slightly better time. Is all of this kind of a, a moot point? I, I've mm-hmm. said my my kids are six and eight right now. I think it's unlikely that they'll actually learn how to drive unless it's for fun, uh, because the self driving cars are are so close right now. the The whole idea of owning cars is going to radically change anyway. So. When we do that, the amount of parking spaces goes down by like an order of magnitude. And suddenly if you just walk wherever you want to walk. When you want to stop walking, you, you pull out your phone, push a button, and a robot picks you up. That's actually happening a lot more quickly than most people are, are thinking about right now. There's billions of dollars being poured into this. Is that going to change what a blue zone is or what a life radius is radically for your vision? I think it's going to improve the life radius, and I'm also eager for the future. I hope it happens in my lifetime, and I I think it will. I'm very supportive of the fact that as we go more and more to driverless cars, that we can get rid of 95% of all the parking. You know, Uh, we can put in buildings, we can achieve the placemaking and and the... uh, uh, densities that are needed to, to create a thriving, bustling center and uh, and add to each neighborhood. What, what are your thoughts, Samantha? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, as you point out, the technology, driverless cars, as an example, is not far behind. We're already moving uh, as a trend into more of like a sharing economy with the Zipcar and Car2Go and kind of all these different ways that you can be either uh, car free, car light, or have the option for your kids um, when they're old enough to drive to tap into a car um, when maybe there isn't one available with the household. And I think too that um, the other trends that not only support this evolution in technology 
are, are changing demographics. Um, in North America, we have one of the highest uh, and largest populations of our history turning 65 um, in the matter of the next 10 years. And so we have this huge population shift happening and the next kind of largest uh, population generation, the millennials, are already reflecting maybe what you're seeing with your kids. Where I'm a millennial, I don't want to have to own a car if I don't need one. I want to be able to have access to a car. I want choice. And I think a lot of, of the Blue Zones philosophy, not only in the built environment, but the other areas of work that we do around work sites and food and schools and the like, is really about how do we create choices and how do we bring to the forefront what are the healthier choices and that becomes easier for people um, to make those options available. Yeah, but uh, Dave, your, your uh, uh, mention of is it a viewpoint, no, I think as we become much more walkable and more focused on people, the social lives of our neighborhoods and things like that, we're preparing ourselves for, for the car light or the carless, uh, you know, uh, future. Yeah. So you have a concept of this life radius, and I realize I mentioned it earlier, but I never asked you guys to, uh, to define it accurately. And, and this is a really key point because for listeners, if they're looking at relocating or just changing the environment around them to make their neighborhood or, or their environment more compatible with, with human biology, thinking about things in terms of life radius is actually really helpful. Can you define that so people can sort of get that in their heads? Yeah, I think a, a key point about a life radius, which is one of the Blue Zones principles, is that we spend 90% of our lives inside of a radius. And for some people, that might be 20 miles if they drive a car and, and they don't have stores near where they are or to go to a park, you need to get in a car to go. But the ideal life radius would be down around five miles. Uh, the, the human being can walk uh, in 20 minutes one mile, so a, a, an hour-long walk, you, you've got, you own three miles. That, uh, it's, if it's beautiful, it's attractive and safe and comfortable, many people will walk uh, two miles to a train station, for example. Now with a bicycle, the radius becomes much greater. Uh, it's easy to, to do a five and even a 10 mile walk. But the point is you want most of the things you're gonna do for 90% of your time to be inside that radius. So you don't have to do something exotic. So your friends, your worship centers, food, uh, entertainment, everything, ideally is an area that you own, you know that area. So that's the life radius and it adds to a person's health and happiness to have a good life radius. Yeah, and I would just add, you know, for the visual listeners out there, um, if you have a hand free or just mentally, if you put a dot on a piece of paper and that symbolizes you and in your house, then, you know, put other dots that represent the coffee shop, your workplace, uh, your school, children's school, uh, the park, all of the worship center, all these things that Dan just mentioned. And then from there, um, that helps define your life radius. Where are your friends' homes, uh, your other gathering places? And then I guess the question would be is, of those key things, how many can you access by foot, bike, car, transit? And is it actually safe and comfortable to do all of the above? And then you can start to define 
through those routes of travel, maybe those are priority areas that could be further enhanced within your community and with your neighborhood to provide that choice. Um, it, it makes sense if you're looking to relocate, you know, map out those things. The problem is if you're looking at a new neighborhood, you don't know if you like that coffee shop. They probably don't even put butter in their coffee. No. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, not just that, but you know, there's also this idea a lot of people don't know this, but the number one variable as to whether someone's going to be your friend is how close they are to you. Yeah. And at least that's historically speaking, but we have this weird thing called social media now. And there are a lot of people who have friends that are not at all near them anymore. We have these online interactions and this lets you kind of filter and you're like, oh, you know, my friends are the ones who you know, like to dress up in medieval outfits or Tron. And like, okay, <laughs> there's probably only like 40 people like that on the planet, but they're all friends, right? Yeah. And there's probably a group for them. So, so we have this almost hyper-specialization of, of, of friendships that isn't geographically friendly at all. Like I, I get on airplanes and fly to conferences quite often to hang out with, with a group of very close friends. And we live, I don't even know where half of them live. Like, like I probably could remember if I had to, but I haven't been to their houses. I'm never going to. So we all fly somewhere, spend three, four days, allegedly to do some business thing, but it's mostly because we're all friends. Um, I, I see like there's, all, there's something happening where the proximity of, of your friends is maybe less important and people don't know their neighbors as much because of social media. Do you think that'll just naturally reverse itself or is there something about maybe most people don't really like their neighbors anyway because they have nothing in common, especially mm -hmm. in big cities? Yeah, I think, you know, I think uh, both friendship circles are very important. We need, uh, now that we have social media, we need to feel connected to people have uh, a like sharing of ideas and concepts and things like that. But we need to uh, bump into people on a daily basis. And uh, study after study is confirming how important that is, that it adds to your sense of well-being, that uh, true happiness uh, comes from how many friends you have. And an interesting study about that, and, and it gets back to the life radius with the uh, impact of the card. You want to tell the story about Donald Effiard, uh, his studies? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It was in the 80s, right, Dan? It was. Mm -hmm. So Donald Appleyard was studying uh, around livability, the guru of kind of uh, livable streets in San Francisco. And so he wanted to see if there was a correlation between how many neighbors or associates or friends you had on your street compared to how fast um, vehicles and traffic was moving on your street. So lots of traffic compared to streets with little to no traffic. And what he found is on streets that um, had low traffic, slower speeds, uh, quieter, people on average knew they had three strong acquaintances on their block. And then as streets got overbuilt and widened and encouraged more through traffic, people who lived on those streets only knew maybe one acquaintance on their block. So the social connection of the street dramatically changed due to the relationship with the building forms and um, the volume of one mode of traffic on it. And what he saw was as those streets uh, got built out, the homes you know, no longer had people gathering on the front porches and no longer had little uh, stopping points where people were bumping into one another as they were either coming out of their parked car, walking down the road, and so forth. And so we are seeing a direct correlation between 
how many hours per day is recommended to add to people's happiness of social interaction and engagement from not only like really tight family and friends, but also the just the need for us to be able to bump into each other. And um, really, it's about six hours of face-to-face -face bump into one another time, and that actually excludes <laughs> Facebook. Yeah. So although that's an important circle to stay connected, um, it's not fully contributing to our full uh, well-being and happiness. So six hours a week of bumping into people is more than most people get, especially if they work from home. I, I work from home. Uh, I don't yeah. bump into that many people at all. Um, <laughs> And I actually see this, this quite a bit, unless you're in a cubicle farm and you, then you spent a half hour commuting and then you sit in your office building or unless you're in sales and you're calling on accounts or something like that, seems like no one's getting that. You're right. And we're looking at how do we even reshape the way we are working these days? How do we make more walking meetings or, uh, uh, you know, breaks and we're actually seeing that as people are moving more mm -hmm. and that means then you're maybe randomly bumping into people or you're engaging with people in different ways that we're starting to improve work productivity too. Um, so there's a direct uh, correlation between how healthy, mobile one person is both physically and mentally that then relates to productivity. And so I think we're thinking about, you know, from the life radius standpoint, how do we create environments that allow for more of that permeability and the choice so it really isn't, um, I joke with my sister, getting in your uh, car box, leaving your home box, to your work box, to your gym box, you know, back to your home box. And how is it more fluid in allowing for those spontaneous moments of, of collaboration, innovation, or just interaction. It's kind of funny that you mentioned a, a gym box. You know, the CrossFit box is a, is a pretty famous thing. And one of the reasons CrossFit's taken off is that they have a really strong sense of community built in around these things. Mm -hmm. But I mean, wouldn't just putting more smaller gyms in neighborhoods solve a lot of these problems? Not directly. And, and here's, here's the key <laughs> point. Uh, People who join a gym, say the first of the year, uh, the percentage just drop off astronomically. Oh, yeah. That um, the best way for people to stay fit and, uh, and of all ages to stay fit is, is truly to walk out your front door for walking to be a natural activity so that then you start to bump into people and you get in your daily routine, just walking to a store that's nearby, whatever, that you're, you're getting both the social connectedness that you need and you're getting that physical uh, connection that is essential for longevity and just good health. So, so I, I travel extensively. Like I've, I've traveled to China and looked at like the spaceship cities where like the air isn't breathable outside. So like every building has airlocks and there's like 50,000 people living in each mm -hmm. building. There isn't a lot of social interaction on the street. You go to Japan, less people walking, a lot of people talking. You go to New York, same thing. Like, so people walking doesn't seem to have a high correlation of people actually communicating and doing neighborly things, actually, especially in New York. I love New York, but I mean, New Yorkers aren't known for being so friendly, right? <laughs> yeah, I think there's definitely the different like cultural aspects to the social life of a street. And as you point out, New Yorkers are heads down, on the go, <laughs> you know, as a kind of full context. 
but you know where New York has um, strong models is they have a lot of range and options and where you're living and still be able to access kind of all of your daily things with different transportation choices. And is that is that like an ideal blue zone sort of life radius city? Like, is, is this a model? Well, for us from the built environment, from the walkability standpoint, you get true walkability when you have a diversity of destinations within a five to 20 minute walk. So one mile radius gets you the heart of walkability. And it really, uh, so yeah, New York has a lot of that scale, but that's also really urban. It happens and can fit all sizes. Dan and I live in Port Townsend, Washington, which is a town of 9,000 people. And it is uh, very walkable, bikeable, uh, has a lot of great active transportation and living choices for people of all ages because of its kind of core uh, form. Where, I mean, where I live, I can walk to my coffee shop, to the yoga studio, to a park, multiple parks, to the co-working space that I work at, to Dan's house where we're sitting today. Um, and for those people that choose to live a little bit further outside of town, then once they get into town, they can walk and bike to all of their destinations and or even bike in. So there's different scales. And so what we're looking at is how do we bring back the human scale to environments that then will foster the healthy choices um, and improve overall quality of life, livability, and equity, you know, access to things. You know, there's a a really great uh, spot in Pennsylvania that doctors were trying to study forever where people are living uh, their, their genes. <laughs> they, mm -hmm. they basically uh, refuse to die and they refuse to get sick. And uh, so medical team after medical team went in to try to figure out what it was. They were basically all immigrants from, I think it was a spot in Italy, all from the same village there. They became, um, rock quarriers, the men, and so they finally uh, figured out what it was. Every night they would come home from the quarry, typically walk back from the quarry, and the, the women would come out of the houses, they would socialize in the streets for 20, 30, 40 minutes, and that was the magic. People need that social connectedness, uh, and uh, the more diverse it is, uh, the better, uh, that you're not just with your uh, special social group or economic uh, strata, you're, you're mixing with America. So there's where I think the, the social life of our streets uh, really has to take on uh, greater importance. Yeah. It's interesting. One of the, the quantified self-founders, uh, a group of, of guys who've really been looking at, at just getting data off the human body, um, made a guy's name was Seth Roberts, and he recently passed away. And, and we'd been doing some collaboration on the effect of small amounts of sugar on sleep quality. But one of the correlations that he wrote about uh, in his book and talked about on his his website was the number of faces you see per day being an important variable for how well you sleep at night. So he was like, if I see faces on TV, it doesn't really matter. But if I actually see them without any conscious awareness that it makes a difference, I sleep better. And I, I thought that was, well, it sounded a little bit crazy, uh, but honestly, that's what the data says. And I think it's true, but it's true at a very visceral level that's far below our, our rational, conscious, reasoning part of the brain. Like the body's calmer when it sees lots of other primates around. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and it may even work for dog faces. I mean, my, my dog's pretty cute. <laughs> <laughs> we are obsessed with dogs. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so we're talking about all these different things that, that people might want to consider in picking a neighborhood to make them live longer or feel better or just be happier. It's, quality of life is one of those things that everyone wants, but few people want desperately because it's, it's not that well-defined. But Dan, you've led a pretty interesting life and you've done a bunch of these bicycle expeditions. You spent six months in Mexico and you led a bike expedition through China in 1980 when it was just coming out of feudalism. And then you went straight to Australia and you looked at these radically different environments. Uh, what, like, what did you learn? What made you come up with this life, uh, this life radius perspective from all those weird experiences? I, I, I kind of find it hard to put all those together into coherent uh, current yeah. way of thinking, but you you have. Yeah, and I think uh, a, a special epiphany I had when I was in Australia in 1980, working with them on bicycling to improve bicycling in Australia, I came to fall in love with all their towns, all of their towns. And uh, as I tried to figure out, well, what's different? They drive cars, they, they have many of the same assets that we have in the States. And then I finally figured out, they didn't design their towns for their cars. The scale of the towns, the block patterns, uh, where they placed the buildings, how well the buildings held the street, numbers of people walking, it was all uh, a confirmation they were building their towns for people, which is what humankind has been doing for as long as we've had cities, and I believe that, that goes back as far as 12,000 years uh, to the first recognizable cities, We've always designed cities for people. It's only since around 1918 or 1920 that we stopped designing the cities for people. And uh, so the scale of our cities is wrong. Where we put the buildings, uh, far back on the lot, the lack of green, everything is, is out of scale and proportion. So that's what creates these uh, deserts of uh, social engagement and the desire even to walk. So I think that epiphany is what changed my career. So I switched from being in love with bicycling to being in love with walking. And that then gave me the right scale and introduced me to all the the great thinkers of the world, uh, both those who uh, wrote their early work in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and the people who are alive today who are bringing the change. So to me, the future is based around the human foot. It's uh, the right scale. Yeah. It's interesting. Most European cities were architected or just evolved before the car, and most American cities would be after the car, at least outside of the very downtowns. And, and something weird happened in Silicon Valley. Um, all of the core Silicon Valley, Santa Clara, San Jose, uh, Palo Alto, all of that was, was designed for cars. It all grew up as suburbs. And it's very interesting that you know when I was down there, that's where a lot of the tech innovation happened. Like we invented computer networking there and cloud computing and things like that. Um, but now the new wave of entrepreneurs, they're all living in San Francisco, which is a very walkable city. I, I really like San Francisco. And they're like, I guess I'll hop on a bus and go down to Silicon Valley if I have to, but couldn't we just have an office nearby? So we're seeing this very, almost doesn't make any sense. Real estate's stupidly expensive in San Francisco, but companies keep going there because the talent's there because the talent basically wants to walk. I, I think that's part of it. They, they want also other people like them in their neighborhood, which is that clustering effect. So it, it's, it's really interesting because 
it may mean that if you live in a walkable area or you buy a house in a walkable area that your property values are going to go up. Is there evidence for that? Strong evidence. Uh, in fact, uh, I believe the figure currently is about 80% of all large corporations are wanting to move back into the center city. And wow. the reason is that's where the talent is. So if they want to hire the, the Samanthas of the world, the millennials, then they need to be where they want to live. And yeah. so 80% of the larger corporations are wanting to move back to the center cities. I, yeah, I can, and, go ahead. Oh, and I was just going to add on the home value side, there's an organization called Walk Score that measures all of the destinations. It's kind of similar concept to the life radius that are within your neighborhood or city. You know, you can extrapolate out as you want to, but they develop a score. So uh, San Francisco or the heart of Seattle, Capitol Hill neighborhood, as an example, has like a walk score of 94, which is out of 100. You can't really get much better than that. Um, but what we are seeing is with a one point increase in walk score, anywhere from a 300 to a $3,000 um, increase to your home value in so obviously, the higher the walk score, the higher right. the, the real estate market has shifted. It now wants walkability. Yeah. Um, it, it's definitely true. Uh, I'm paying attention to this. The second bulletproof coffee shop is going into a, a downtown area that's being revitalized by exactly this trend. Uh, it, it's in Los Angeles, so we're putting a second one down there. I'm not going to say exactly where yet, although we just signed the lease. So there's a lot of people in L.A. whose ears just pricked up yeah, um, because there, there's definitely people who want these. And I'm looking at other cities, and, yeah, I look at walkable areas because um, that's ideal. I'm, I'm working to create a sense of community around you know, these ideas of you, know, you can make small changes in the world around you that actually make you perform better. And showing people that in a coffee shop is awesome and doing it in an area where people are likely to walk in and come in and have a cup of coffee and meet someone else who cares about the same kind of thing. Uh, that's important to me. It's, it's one of the reasons I do what I do. So that's part of our real estate equation for figuring out where a coffee shop should be is that, you know, we look at parking, but we also look at, do people just not need parking because they were already on foot? Cause that's really nice. Yeah. Now, Samantha, we just talked about Dan and his unusual experiences, but you also worked in Africa for a little while, and that kind of gave you a perspective, as I understand it, from from looking at your work. That's one of the things that inspired you uh, as a millennial to step up and start looking at walkability and looking at blue zones. What did Africa teach you about this kind of stuff? Yeah, well, uh, I was specifically in South Africa, which is you know a huge country in the continent of Africa. And um, I went to really study sociology, urban geography of the cities and towns and villages. And, you know, in short, South Africa has uh, a very interesting history and is a relatively new democracy. And what I found um, most intriguing and also frightening quite honestly, was how so many of the cities, due to its political past and apartheid, had um, the built environment created such segregation. Even um, today, you know, it's not as uh, apparent per se as like the Berlin Wall and the um, coming down and that symbolism. But, you know, really people still, I think, are... I guess in ways living in fear where I had never been exposed to gated communities <laughs> the way that I had been in South Africa or the disparity in transportation equity where 
folks living in the townships um, needed to walk, needed to try to get a bike or take a little town cab to come into the center city. And also, um, I was there in 2007, um, a lot of the downtowns of Cape Town was certainly coming back, but Johannesburg, uh, Port Elizabeth, the small kind of suburban community that I was living in, uh, had all the life had fled out of the downtowns and they were scary places. And as a woman, you uh, were advised not to walk at night or certain times of the day. So it was really eye-opening in the contrast of freedom, access, and equity, and how our built environment really shapes a lot of our kind of social ramifications and the socioeconomic strata too that defines us. And then what I found most intriguing was in my time volunteering in some of the townships, um, I was an outsider. I had uh, maybe a naive perception. I didn't grow up experiencing the same things that people experienced, but I felt the most warmth and welcome um, from a lot of the township communities that's black, primarily black and colored people. And there was such a strong social network within those communities, within the families, that then it made me really think about how vital that social life is to us. Um, yeah, and so when I came back to the U.S., I knew that I wanted to work with uh, civic engagement, community-minded, and how do we really help strengthen our nucleuses, which often stem from our street and build out into our neighborhood and then city and town. So then let's say that someone's listening to Bulletproof Radio right now, and like, you know what, this is really cool. I, I want a better life radius. Uh, and I'm not going to move because mm -hmm. I own my house and because it's kind of expensive to sell your house and buy a new one and all that yeah. sort of stuff. So what are the like the top three things you might do if you wanted to transform or upgrade the life radius around you? So what what do you do? Okay, you come home today after work and... I think oh. let's just start <laughs> with anything, right? Uh, uh, Pogo Park mm -hmm. in uh, Richmond, California. Uh, one of the tougher neighborhoods in all of Richmond, and Richmond has had some very tough times. In uh, this neighborhood, a woman named Tootie Mayer came along and worked with the kids and found out that what the kids wanted was a safe place, somewhere they could go to away from the gangs and drugs and all the things that uh, uh, threatened their lives. And in fact, a child had recently been killed. And uh, so what she did is work with the youth and they acquired some land in the middle of the neighborhood and they built Pogo Park. And it is now one of the most amazing parks in America. So the kids go there, There's a they bought a house and uh, uh, made it into a really nice little center, but it's got all, and this is only two thirds of an acre, I believe. It might actually, I think it's only a third of an acre. And they've got over 10 different activity zones built in, but, all the children love to come down every day to spend time. And they've given the, the children work. Uh, they actually get paid. And uh, they come just to have a safe place to do their homework. So you just start wherever uh, in your own neighborhood. In this case, it turned out to be a park. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds a lot like a Boys and Girls Club. I mean, there's mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of Boys and Girls Clubs around around the country. I, I've supported the one in, uh, in East Palo Alto. A, yeah. a friend and mentor runs it. 
and I've gone there and I've volunteered and yeah, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of, of kids who oftentimes don't have a safe place to go do that. So that, that builds definitely some community, but I wouldn't say East Palo Alto is necessarily a thriving community. Like, like it's overcrowded, it's poor, it doesn't have infrastructure um, because what's amazing, there's unpaved streets literally a half a mile from $10 million mansions. Um, so it doesn't sound like that's going to solve my walkable radius problem. Yeah. So, but it's nice to you know give kids a safe place to go. And is that neighborhood in Richmond still a pretty rough part of town, <laughs> or did it transform? And property values went way up, and you know now it's uh, it's gentrified, and you know yeah. houses are worth three times what they were. I, I don't know. Did, did that really change the life radius, or did it help a lot of kids, which is valuable in and of itself? I think it actually improved the life radius. Okay. So people now can walk. They have a place to go to. Okay. And they're bumping into their neighbors. They're asking for the streets throughout the entire neighborhood to be traffic calmed. And cool. uh, the children are actually doing surveys with the drivers and things like that. Yeah, what, wow. I, would, what yeah. I would add is um, as this park was evolving and this woman who was the kind of mother and leader of the mm-hmm. park and the community began to engage the kids more yeah. and say, hey, if this is the safe place in our neighborhood, how are you getting here? Do you feel safe getting here, whether it's from school or home? And, um, you know, the kids all said, no, we are we don't feel safe getting here. That's what we want to do. So together they came up with a concept called the Yellow Brick Road, which was kind of one of the key streets that really was able to pick up and gather the kids. And then from there, they started putting together traffic calming demonstration projects to say, how do we make sure it really feels safe and comfortable for us to walk and bike and for our parents to let us do that? And then where... Um, the partnership came in was with the city of Richmond to say, hey, how can we partner with you, city, that you know oversees this public space, being the roads and the infrastructure, so that over time we can actually get you know permanent change from mini circles to bike lanes to um, adding more trees in the landscape boulevard so we're creating a better shade and sense of comfort um, that way. And so I think, you know, as you pick or pinpoint an area that helps um, bring a gathering place and bring your neighbors together that you can say, how do we better create our community pride, our community identity? And then from there, what are the strategies and partners do you um, do you need to do it, right? And often a city is a crucial partner among many other community stakeholders in actually creating more long-term change. Um, and so, you know, from the short term, it's from what we were just talking about, you know, working to add some paint or, or add new street furniture or benches to a park, but long-term it is even more enrooted in our civic process in a lot of ways. So, so what I'm hearing is create destinations where people want to walk, yes. uh, which means uh, essentially parks and coffee shops. And yeah. there's this yeah. other this other kind of building, I'm forgetting what they used to call them, libraries. Oh, wait, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess they're all empty now. I'm not sure what goes on. I'm kidding. Libraries still still work, um, but uh, now they're, they're full of computers. They are full of computers, and and it, it it's kind of interesting though. If you look at at the number of places the average person is going to walk, um, I I have a hard time imagining walking to the grocery store because I don't know about you guys, but I like to cook, and for me to carry enough groceries home to be useful, walking isn't a very good idea unless you live above a grocery store. 
So I, I still think that there are some you know, some reasons that people will be driving for a long time. But okay, so now you've come home from work. Like, all right, I'm, I'm going to you know, just to make this really practical. <laughs> all right, so I'm actually I've, I've got a family. You know, I'm, I'm working. I'm probably not going to go out and start a boys and girls club or you know buy a house with money that I'd have to fundraise on Kickstarter or something and you know create this neighborhood thing. Um, by the way, more power to you if you decide to do that. But the average person listening to this just that just probably isn't their life's mission. So, but you, let's say, all right, I'm, I'm going to support that. <laughs> or I'm going to support someone who's doing that work, mm-hmm. uh, which is an amazing thing to do rather than supporting the work directly. You find someone who's, who's really struggling to do that and, and do something really helpful for them, even if it's, you know, a couple hundred bucks uh, that helps them make ends meet while they're bringing a vision to fruition can, can change the world. But so you do something like that. So now you've created more walkable things and you decide you're going to go maybe to your local coffee shop instead of the drive through um, Starbucks or McDonald's or wherever you go on, on the way to uh, on the way to work. I, I mean, those are two kind of small actionable things, but are we really going to see any results if, if even if half the people listening to this went off and did that today? Um, like, like what are, is there anything more actionable that you could do if you want to really, really make the neighborhood around you better? Like, is there an association you should join? Uh, some sort of you know magic uh, uh, magic fairy dust you sprinkle in your neighborhood that makes life radiuses get upgraded. Like like how do we make this kind of easy? Because right now it sounds like eh, ten years and lots of lots of political you know process like meetings and stuff like that. And a lot of people just aren't going to do that. Like how, how do we make it happen? Well, yeah, there is as we said earlier, no silver bullet. It's yeah. like a buckshot, right? We need many actions. But I think every person taking some action is going to help. And now, I use Vancouver, British Columbia as a great example that uh, I believe it was around 1982 or 84, they had the World's Transportation Fair. Uh, and they had a, that was 1986. 86, I, thank I you. I actually went there, believe it or not. That's kind of <laughs> strange. But yeah, Expo 86. Okay. So, <laughs> so they not only acquired all the land, which became, of course, the perimeter of the waterfront, but they... Uh, set a plan in motion that they were going to be increase the density of Vancouver. They are going to boost the ability to have easy walking, easy biking, easy transit, give people an opportunity, and it just performed magic. You know, they were very good about their planning and uh, put most of the density on the waterfront in a way that kept the view sheds open and all the right things built a trail around the entire peninsula, 50 feet, I believe belongs to the public, good spaces between the buildings. And then we're able to keep all of the single family uh, residential stock totally intact. And uh, today I believe the figures are that, that uh, Vancouver has become the densest part of North America and uh, one of the safest. So all of these things were attributed to their <laughs> Thinking well, it, to the future, right? It, it's also more expensive than San Francisco and has some oh, of the yeah. worst traffic in North America as a result. Yeah, no, that that's true. <laughs> Unless you choose to live there, and then maybe you see your car know, once or twice a week when you want to. If you're if you're downtown, that, that if that's, you're downtown, it's yeah. totally true. But it, it's interesting when you drive density and make it more walkable. Traffic doesn't always get better. London has the same problem. Like yeah, they, they made yeah. it prohibitively expensive for cars to come in. It's you know whatever twenty five bucks a day just to to enter the city uh, perimeter, mm-hmm. uh, which really kind of makes it hard for people who live out in the country. Uh, yeah. So it, it's it's definitely a double edged sword. But I agree, if if you're going to live in a neighborhood, you want it to be walkable. And for people listening, this is one of those things where 
it's not a pressing, I have to have this right now, like clean air. Like, okay, I can't breathe today. That's a real problem. Yeah. But if you're looking at designing the environment that makes you and, and your family completely thrive, uh, the, the kinds of thinking that you're demonstrating with, with Blue Zones and the idea of a life radius, it, it's really valuable. And because we have this radical degree of control of our environment, like, like we can bring in tractors, we can re-architect cities at a rate that was unimaginable 20 or 100 years ago. Uh, like the amount of time it takes to build a hundred story building is less than ever. It's cheaper than it ever was in, in terms of a lot of things. It's, there's a lot of extra regulation and, and things like that. But we can we can turn more quickly than we've ever been able to. The, the nimbleness of our infrastructure has changed. So uh, this means that if we build this thinking into our civic processes, that we actually just automatically build an environment that makes for stronger humans, which is something I'm really interested in. That's why you guys are on the show and I, I appreciate you coming on. Um, there's a, a question that I've asked every guest on the show, except for episode 70-something where I forgot, but hey, we'll, we'll forgive that one. And that is, given what you know, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll get both of you to answer it, but, but given all that you've learned in this process and just in life, if someone came to you today and said, you know, I want to kick ass at life, I want to be better at everything, what are the three most important pieces of advice you have for me? Uh, what would you say? Dan, why don't you go first? Okay, as an individual for, to improve your own life, right? Yep, or okay. your, your own performance, not just your life. But like, you know, I want to be better at everything I do. I want to be a better dad, a better mom, a better entrepreneur, a better soccer player, whatever it is. Well, to me, number one is to experience life, uh, to to get a robust uh, series of experiences in life so that you now have a better platform. You're standing taller, you can see out more, you can experience more in life and it takes you good places so get those experiences and get them early on if you can and then keep growing don't ever stop and uh, oh boy after that one <laughs> I would say uh, befriend everybody that I throughout my entire life and career I have always been amazed at how things circle back that because I wrote an article, for example, I met Dan Butner and, and changed his life so that I now work for Dan Butner. So I think that would be very important to uh, do that. And uh, let's go to Samantha while I'm thinking number three. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> oh, I don't want to blow my number three. It's okay. like three wishes, right? Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, maybe mine might be a little bit more smaller scale and individual on on how I, I feel like I keep propelling my passion, which is around, uh, you know, built environment, walkable communities, um, is to make sure you create time to what we call blue zones downshift. And whether that means um, making more little breaks or respites in your day or something that I've recently uh, been doing is on weekends, I really try, and this is really hard, but to completely disconnect from technology, <laughs> aka my phone or the internet. But usually I have to do that by escaping up into the mountains and hiking or something like that. But, you know, to me, what that downshift moment allows in whatever right way is for um, you as a listener is to get that perspective. You know, how are you reminding yourself kind of like where you're at and how powerful our environments in the world is around us? And that inspires me to keep working towards change, which is the second 
piece is don't fear change. And I, um, I think we all want to accept change and it can be a, a hard thing when there's change in our life, whether it's really dramatic or really small. But I try to challenge myself and seek change and how are we always pushing that needle for change and hopefully for the better. <laughs> yeah, sure. um, and then the third piece, um, I think is just, yeah, again, surround yourself by your loved ones and that is able to connect and that's kind of back to your friend. Okay, piece. so I'm I, uh, glad I waited because this one to me is, <laughs> is the one that actually fuels my engines. Um, uh, I'm passionate about things and it's that passion, but I think the passion is focused around bringing change that uh, if if we focus our life on you know you've only got so many years on this planet uh, if you if you just accept everything as the way it is it's going to stay the way it is you've given up and you've given up from almost the first moments in life so my whole life has been focused on bringing change and I think as people realize they have that power uh, to grow and to be effective that uh, becoming a, a powerful change agent is is one of the most important of the three. Awesome. Well, th thank you uh, so much for sharing that. And thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Where can people find out more about uh, about Blue Zones and, and what you're doing with it? Yeah. yeah. Well, bluezones.com is a great yeah. spot where you can learn more about the in-depth and robust uh, work that we're doing. And Dan Butner, founder and CEO, has several books. His newest one is The Blue Zones Solution which focuses more on food and um, from the Blue Zones communities, the five where people are living the longest. And the original of the Blue Zones book is a good one that sets the principle on what what is Blue Zones. Anyways. And for, for people listening, we have two Dans. We, yes. I just interviewed Dan, <laughs> Dan Burden, the director of innovation, and Dan Butner is the author of the book. And I think the other Dan will be on Bulletproof Radio at some point. Wonderful. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. This is great. Thanks for being on. Have an awesome day. Appreciate it. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode of Bulletproof Radio, you should know that the entire time, and you would have seen this if you're on YouTube, I was shifting around because I was standing on the Bulletproof sleep induction mat, which has all of these acupressure spikes. So I was actually like making my feet tougher and stronger and activating acupressure points while I interviewed people, which is definitely, definitely kind of biohacker cool. You can check out the sleep induction mat the new technology you can also get on the Bulletproof website that blocks blue light coming out of your phone so you can sleep better if you do look at your phone before bed, which you know you're not supposed to do, but you do anyway. Check that kind of stuff out. And if not, just download this episode, leave it a good, uh, leave it a good review. I really, really appreciate those. And check out the new Blue Zones book because it's neat to think about how the environment around you is going to be affecting you and even the next generation, and we can do it right now. Have an awesome day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products.
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.